gospel writers filmed the movie that is Jesus's life from a panoramic view to a close-up, all in an effort to show us that to be his disciple, we will have to break from the crowd. I'd like to say good morning to everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yesterday, uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit's work. And uh, I appreciate you all for being so patient with me. I spoke uh, for about 52 minutes. It was? Okay, well, okay. Well, good. Because I intend to go 58 this morning. Uh, Jordan gave me 45 minutes. He said, well, feel free not to use all 45 minutes. <laughs> and I told them, uh, you really don't have to worry about that uh, because I will use every second of 45 minutes plus seven more minutes. So, uh, so I'm hoping that uh, this session will be helpful. I have enjoyed my time here so far. It, it feels good to live here for three days. I'm, I'm just on day two, but it feels great so far. In today's session, I'm going to give to you a list of uh, boring things, uh, many facts and many uh, sets of information. Then we will turn our attention to a very lengthy passage in Acts chapter 2, all in an effort to help us become stronger disciples. In reference to what is referred to today as homosexuality, there are a number of different area phases in how we got to where we are today. I am not calling them phases because as I give these random list of facts to you, they will not be in chronological order to an extent that it is perfect. As they overlap and get fuzzy. In the same way, I won't uh, be using just the term area because some of it is sort of chronological. And so we'll talk today about homosexuality in an area phase. An area meaning in general, this happened during this time, a phase meaning at this time a little more specific. In area phase number one, it was only an act. It was not anything but the act of participating in same gender sexual activity. In area phase one, it was the idea that physically a female can have some type of intercourse with another female and a male could have some type of intercourse with another male. It was an act alone in area phase one. By the time we reach area phase two, this unnamed act 
is given a name called homosexuality, which is to say a sexuality where you desire the same homo, the same gender. When we look at secular psychology, we are actually seeing where this idea first kind of sprung up, where secular psychologists would recognize this behavior and then give the people who interact in that behavior a specific name. They would give those people a name so that it's not a man who is doing, quote, homosexual things, but the man himself is a homosexual. With Carl Westphal's book, or article rather, Contrary Sexual Feeling, published in 1870, it was him who first sort of uh, explored the idea of identity and sexual orientation in reference to identity. Area phase three is whenever homosexuals are treated as people having actual diseases, is treated as a mental disorder. In the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the first and the second volume, uh, the edition rather, which we call the DSM, it was published in 1952 by the American Psychiatric Association, and it described homosexuality as paraphilia, which is some type of deviation, a, a perversion sexually. In the second edition of the same work, it changed from paraphilia to sexual orientation disturbance. And so then here in area phase three, psychology decided to classify it as a disease and to give it a name and to give certain types of treatments for the disease, very drastic treatments like lobotomies and electroshock therapy, among others. In area phase number four, homosexuality is illegal and punishable by law. Prior to 1962, beginning with the state of Illinois, prior to that date, homosexuality was considered a form of sodomy and there were very strict laws against it. People could be put in jail, people's lives could even be legally taken. In area phase number five, homosexuals are endangered by society. They can actually lose their jobs for being homosexual. You could lose your family for being homosexual. You could be beaten up by the townsmen or even killed. In area phase number six, the church actually sides with secular psychology. By agreeing that homosexuality is a disease. So then in addition to the church believing it to be a sin because of the Bible's instruction, it also now sees it as a disease having agreed with secular psychologists. When we talk about the crowd as it appears in the Bible, the crowd is really an unstable thing, especially when we look at the Gospels, 
and the book of Acts. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, the crowds are really an unstable thing. For instance, here in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 8, whenever Jesus heals a paralyzed person, the crowd looks upon Jesus and they're in awe of him. They marvel at the work that he's able to do. But in John 7, 19 and following, whenever Jesus declares that all authority has been given to him and he can speak boldly because he has authority from heaven, the same crowd turns and says to him, he has a demon. In John 6 and 1, the Bible says that he was so popular and he was doing so many things that the crowds in large numbers, they followed him literally everywhere he went. But in Matthew 9, 23 and following, whenever he sees a dead girl, they go to get him, and he says, no, this girl is not dead. Instead, she's sleeping. They laugh at him as if he's a crazy man. In Matthew 21, 45 and following, the Pharisees see that he is threatening their you know, authority, and they want to kill him, but they fear the crowds because the crowds have called him a prophet. But in Mark 15, 8, we see that the crowd pulled the trigger, that it really, in all honesty, was not just the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was not Pilate, but it was the crowd who killed Jesus. Whenever they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. So then the gospel writers, they film the movie that is Jesus' life, first from a panoramic view and then a close-up, all in an effort to show us that to be his disciple, we will have to break from the crowd. In reference to homosexuality, here in area phase number seven, Secret homosexual traces are found in film and in TV shows. Homosexuals are portrayed as subordinate, as sissy, and even as evil. If you look closely at many of the villainous characters in movies from the 1950s on, many of those villainous characters are portrayed as having gay characteristics. Even today, we see this same type of subliminal message that for a man or a woman to have characteristics of the other gender is in some way evil. Think about Scar from The Lion King. Mufasa, of course, is the strong king, the strong, manly father of Simba. Simba. Not only did you put yourself in danger, but also Nala. And Scar, his younger brother, the evil one, who sort of sashays about talking to Simba. Consider Dr. Evil, who has sort of a mannerism about himself. Or every incarnation of the Joker, even from the earliest incarnation on television with the bam, pow, gee golly whiz, Batman, all the way down to Heath Ledger. 
there's something about the way he dresses or the way he moves. Here in area phase seven, the homosexual finds uh, traces of him or herself in popular film and in TV show and in popular culture where normally it's associated with some negative or villainous character. In area phase number eight, homosexuals live undercover in America by cheating on their spouses, getting married to obey the social norms, but cheating on their spouses, or not getting married and living in a subversive way underneath the radar. In area phase number nine, homosexuals become tired of persecution, and for the first time, we see them openly revolt in large numbers. Many relocate to urban enclaves within the country. They build communities and establish groups and initiatives to fight for social equality. This is a fight that's ongoing, one that really started in New York City at a club called Stonewall. In 1969, was something called the Stonewall Riots. Whenever refusing to be bullied and refusing to be banned from celebrating and from partying like everyone else, they decide to riot. Normally, police would back up into the clubs there, would back up, and would put everyone into the petty wagon because this is a homosexual organization, and so everybody goes to jail. But here in 1969, this movement called the LGBTQ movement is sort of born and takes place. It, it, it takes its, its root here in New York City in 1969. We, of course, consider uh, the civil rights movement a legitimate movement, but we often forget that a movement right after it was the LGBTQ movement, an actual movement with activists, with platforms, with money, with political agendas. By the time we get to area phase number 10, psychology now determines that it's not a disease. It reasons that if homosexual desire is in a person, but it's not a disease, then it must be inborn. And if it's inborn, then it must be natural. And if it's natural, then it must be right. Do you see the continuum there? That now we decide, no, it's not a disease. The gay rights movement is picking up traction. And so now secular uh, psychologists, they say, no, it's not a disease. And so then if it's not a disease, it must mean that people are born like this. And so then if people are born like this, then it must be natural. And so then if it's natural, it must be right. And so that's why today the agenda and the platform often compares homosexuality to race and gender because it's natural to be born white, it's natural to be born black, it's natural to be born woman, it's natural to be born man, so then it must also be natural to be born homosexual. How then could it be wrong to be black if you were born that way? How is it wrong to be Hispanic if you're born that way? How is it wrong to be a female or male if you're born that way? And so then now, 
psychologists have created a continuum of thought that if it's not a disease, then it must have been there from the start. If it was there from the start and born in the individual, then it must also be natural. And if it's natural, it must also be like many other natural things, like race or gender. If it's like race or gender, one's race or gender can't be wrong, so then this itself cannot be wrong. Which leads us to area phase number 11, the sexual freedom for gays, especially men in large urban areas where throughout the 1970s there was multiple sex partners, bath houses, and the beginning of popular gay pornography. The gay liberation of the 1970s, which then leads us to area phase number 12, the HIV and AIDS epidemic, where many gay men all over the country began dying rapidly. Now, the government is slow to respond, thereby showing a prejudice the AIDS and HIV epidemic was really a plague. People died rapidly. Stories are told that in Manhattan, no one could get an apartment because it's Manhattan. It's expensive. People don't easily give up their beautiful apartments. But in a two-year stretch, the AIDS epidemic changed the real estate market of Manhattan because so many people died. Apartments empty because of so many dead bodies. The government did not treat it like a plague, though, because the way it works is if a plague hits any type, then there is to be some type of help sent, help by way of pharmaceuticals, by way of medical advances. And this takes research, and research takes money. But what the government said essentially was, we'll get to that, which really was a subconscious message that communicated, well, they're getting AIDS and HIV because they're sodomites, because they're gay. Hence, they deserve to what? Die. The government did not start putting serious money and serious research into vaccines and a collection of medicines that could treat HIV and AIDS until in this country it began affecting women and children. When we look at the crowds, we're looking at a very important factor in the ministry of Jesus. When we look at the Gospels, all the way throughout Acts, the crowds are featured very prominently. The crowd is really an unstable thing. Sometimes they love Jesus and sometimes they hate him. Sometimes they think him to be um, awe-inspiring, and other times they just think him to be the devil himself. Either he's a prophet or he's a crazy man. Either he's here to give us freedom by all the miracles that he performs, or he's here to overturn the religious structure in a way that's going to burn down the temple and burn down the whole Jewish nation. But even though the crowd throughout the scriptures, especially the Gospels and Acts, even though the crowd is very unstable, Jesus still looks upon them and has this huge responsibility for them. 
In Mark 4, 1, for instance, the crowd was so large, the Bible says that Jesus got into a boat to just back up a little bit so that he could teach them more properly. In Matthew 5, 1, the Bible says that he was seeing the crowds, and as he was seeing the crowds, he beckoned them to come to him. He got up on top of a mountain, and so then he spoke to them. And here in Matthew 5, he gave, he delivered the sermon on the mount. In Matthew 9, the Bible says that Jesus, looking out and seeing all of the great crowd, he turns to his disciples and he began to feel compassion, saying to them, for they are lost. They are like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 15, 10, he called the crowd to him. He said to the crowd when speaking about a number of different controversial issues, he calls the crowd to himself and he says, I want you to hear and I want you to understand, even though the crowd was this unstable, scary, wishy-washy, very prominent essence, presence in the ministry of Jesus, he did not step away from the crowd. He essentially worked so as to call the crowd to him, worked so as to deliver the crowd. Though the crowd was unstable, he still systematically found a way to minister to the crowd. The gospel writers, they film the movie that is Jesus' life first from a panoramic view and then to a close-up, all in an effort to show us that to be his disciple, we will have to break from the crowd. Which leads us to area phase number 13. The church is mostly silent on the issue of homosexuality in our country. The AIDS, HIV epidemic has wiped through the country. Thousands upon thousands have died. A movement has begun and has picked up traction. And the church is mainly silent. With the exception of publicly condemning gay people ever so often. Here in area phase number 14, homosexuality begins to appear more heavily in popular culture. Homosexuals are portrayed as quirky, funny, and even sympathetically. Most importantly, now they are seen as non-threatening. So then there's been a switch in culture. One such character is uh, Mr. Humphreys from Are You Being Served? This very popular British comedy where he's funny, well-dressed, gay as ever, never bringing up his relationships, never saying literally the words that he is gay, but you can just tell and you just know. He is a sidebar, the funny comic relief. This is really the first time when homosexuals are starting to be seen not necessarily as evil, but more so as non-threatening, fringe people of society. Here in area phase 15, the movement struggles against Proposition 8 twice. Proposition 8 essentially was a proposition put forth by the California state government banning gay marriage. And so then the movement picks up traction to oppose Proposition 8, murders, 
social persecution, AIDS, and activism continues. The movement picks up slow victories. Some uh, legal victories are won, culminating eventually in the gay marriage law, which very recently legalizes the right for same-sex couples to marry, not just in states like California or Massachusetts, but through the decades in every single state, even the slower ones that have been earmarked as the most conservative. As Memphis is very close to both Arkansas and Mississippi, when marrying a couple in Mississippi, I noted the change in boxes. Male for male, female for female. Which leads us then to area phase number 16 which is medical advances. Due to medical advances, the transgender issue arises, whereas gays and lesbians, including cross-dressers, which normally fall under a general category of queer, have predominated the scene. Science now allows for certain individuals to actually physically undergo a sex change. And so then, here in this area phase, number 16, science has become so advanced to where now we can actually switch. which leads us to area phase number 17. Homosexuality appears in media and popular culture once again, but now more frequently, now more frequently than it ever has before. Nearly every show has a gay character. Homosexuals are portrayed not as they once were, as villainous and evil, not as they once were, as just non-threatening, funny additions to storylines. Now, they are portrayed as smart, cool, free, confident, and even heroes and points of interest in the storyline. Consider Glee, where one Kurt Hummel really is the protagonist in the show, or the popular 16 Emmy award-winning sitcom Will and Grace that was so formative in our culture that after a, almost a decade of it being off the air. In 2017, it was picked up again to air on network television again. Or Empire, which I know we all watch, where the protagonist in the story is the middle son who was mostly unliked by his father and who's openly gay. All this leads us to our final area phase, number 18, where the church responds in two ways. Whereas the church before responded in silence or the occasional angry outburst against the homosexual population. The church now responds in two ways. One group begins to fall to the pressure of guilt for the way that they have treated homosexuals in the past. And so then they loosen or even abandon their views on homosexuality as a sin altogether. And you know how that goes. You know, you've got white guilt. Of course, white people say slavery was so bad, I just don't know how my forefathers did that. I'm just so sorry. And of course, black people are like, you know, we appreciate that. I mean, but you ain't got to really be sorry. We just want it to be better. You, know, you, you don't have to worry 
about a chip. You don't have to carry the chip on your shoulder. You know. It's also that way with straight guilt. Straight guilt. I grew up in a family where homosexuals were bashed all the time, and my brother's homosexual, and my cousin's homosexual. Today, we all know someone in our family or someone in our friend group or someone with whom we work, and they are homosexuals or struggle with homosexuality, as the case may be. And so we have a lot of guilt as, 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 as a straight society has a lot of guilt. And so then they say, you know, I just don't know what I can do. I just, you know. And so maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it, it can be this way. And so then you go into the Bible and you ignore uh, passages like Romans 1 and 2 and the Levitical codes, how very often things from Genesis to Revelation becomes lighter, but homosexuality from Genesis to Revelation seems to become harder and harder and harder. And so one group just says, well, maybe it's not that bad. And then another group remains very strict on the matter. And they, in opposition to the world around them and the other Christian group, becomes even stricter, with some attempting to love homosexuals and even convert them, which is the basis for anti-gay camps, a movement where, you know, if you have gay people in your family and you're a Christian, you can send them to a camp and they can pray the gay away. They'll just send them through some activities. They'll just uh, teach the lesbians to cook and sew. They'll teach all the gay boys to throw uh, footballs and run. And then one weekend later, no more gay. Churches still most likely side with the more traditional psychological view, especially in our circle, that homosexuality is a sin, a disease, and the mildest form, a mental condition, where most often there was an overbearing mother or an absent same-sex parent. The crowd in the ministry of Jesus appears very prominently throughout the Gospels, and especially in Acts. The crowd is really an unstable presence. You can't trust the crowd. Sometimes they're going to love Jesus, sometimes they're going to hate Jesus. But even though the crowd is unstable, Jesus is still very careful to minister to the crowd because ultimately that's why he's come. He's come so as to save the crowd, to save the sinners. And so then he loves the crowd, he calls the crowd to him, he actually has compassion for the crowd. But as the gospel writers unfold the story of his life, we see that the crowd is normally this unstable thing, but the crowd is not looked at just as a side note, but the crowd is noted prominently, consistently, very frequently, so as to draw attention to this one individual that will break from the crowd. There always seems to be this one individual that breaks from the crowd, this one individual that for some reason breaks. Like in Mark chapter 9, there was a crowd that had gathered. And then all of a sudden here this crowd is, and the Bible says that there was a commotion in the crowd. Jesus going to see what the commotion was, it turned out to be this man, and this man having a son who had been possessed by demons who often made him throw himself into fire or drown himself in water. He cries out and he says, it's me, it's me, my son, here, help my son. There's always seemingly this individual who in some way breaks loose from the crowd. 
in Luke chapter 19. The Bible says that Jesus had come to the town and he had been so popular based upon all the things he was doing that a, a large crowd had come. Many, many people had gathered together. But there was this one man who wanted to see Jesus so badly, but he couldn't because he was too little. He was short in stature. And so then he found a sycamore tree and climbed up the thing. A tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And so then Jesus seeing the man, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, have me to your home. I want to know you better. I want you to know me. It seems to be that there's always this one individual that breaks from the crowd. In Mark chapter 5, the Bible says that there was a throng around Jesus, a multitude of people, a, a crowd. And so the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. And so then this man comes up and he says, Master, please come. My daughter, she's sick. She's ill. I need you to come and heal my daughter. A man by the name of Jarius, an important man. It's something how there is all these individuals who somehow seem to break from the crowd. In that same chapter, in that very same passage, while Jesus is talking to Jarius, through the crowd, the crowd pressing in on him, just thronging about him. He looks around as he's about to tend to Jairus and his needs. He looks around and he says, oh my goodness, power has left me. What happened? His disciples, they say, what do you mean power has left you? He says, someone touched me and now power has gone out from me. They said, how can you say someone has touched you? He says, the crowd is pressing in on you. Everyone is touching you. He says, no, but this touch was different. He turns around and he sees a woman who had been bleeding with a physical ailment for 12 years, a flow of blood, a woman literally on her menstrual cycle for 12 years. And she said, I've lost everything and I have to come see you. The gospel writers give us commentary and they said, this woman, she reasoned within herself, I don't have to bother this man. According to the law, I shouldn't even be here because I'm defiled. She says, so I don't have to say anything. I don't have to address him. Oh, but if I could just reach out and touch even the hem of his garment, I know I will be healed. Do you see how it seems that there are always these individuals who break from the crowd? The gospel writers, they are filming the movie that is Jesus' life from first a panoramic view and then a close-up, all in an effort to show us that in order to be a disciple, we will have to break from the crowd. The term crowd or the people or the multitude, it appears some 5,279 times in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Often when we read through the Bible, we pass over this word. We treat the term crowd or multitude or the people, we kind of treat that as a backdrop to what's actually going on. We sort of treat the idea of a crowd as setting the stage for what's about to happen. Not so. In the Bible, especially when the gospel writers are writing about the life of Jesus, the crowd is an actual entity an actual player in the game. You have Jesus as one player, the key character. You have his disciples, supporting roles. You have the antagonists, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders 
of the synagogues, and then you have the crowd. It's an actual entity. It's an actual thing. The crowd has a personality in the ministry of Jesus. The crowd is an actual, living, breathing entity. The crowd loves Jesus. The crowd hates Jesus. The crowd marvels at Jesus. The crowd tries to kill Jesus. Do you know that it was the crowd that killed Jesus? That they all had to partner together to kill him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, and the crowd. The Sadducees, having dominion over the temple, they're the ones, the chief priests and the scribes, they're the ones who trapped him enough to put him on trial. But they could not kill him themselves, so they had to put him on trial before Pilate because Pilate, the governor from Rome, he could. But Pilate could only do it if the Jews signed off on it. And so the real person who pulled the trigger was not the Sadducees and the religious leaders, was not just Pilate. It was the crowd who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas instead. But even though the crowd is wishy-washy, Jesus still loves them. He's dedicated to saving them, to teaching them. And it just seems that when the writers of the New Testament, especially those gospel writers, Luke, when he writes Acts, we just read over it so quickly. But what I'm trying to say is, when they are taping this film that is the movie of Jesus' life, they are starting first with a panoramic view, getting everyone. They're starting first with large groups of people. They're starting first with the multitude. They're starting first with the crowd. And then, from that panoramic view, they zero in. And you can tell that they're zeroing in. And every time something happens in a crowd, it's going to start like this. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're always going to start here and then slowly come in each time. They'll come in. There was a crowd, and then they come in on Zacchaeus. There was a crowd, and they come in on Jairus. There was a crowd, and they come in on this woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. They're always doing a close-up. Notice, when you study the Bible, that close-up is going to show you what's happening. That close-up is the narrators of the scripture, the gospel writers, shushing everyone. Can you hear them say, shh, you're talking, be quiet, you're getting ready to miss something. It's the gospel writers. They're saying, shh, be quiet. They're saying, listen, because when we come in, we're getting ready to zero in on a person to see one thing. Will they become a disciple or not? Will they become a disciple? Is this a potential disciple? Is this someone who's about to give their life to Christ? Is this someone who Jesus is about to save? Shh, they start from the crowd, and then they go in. On that close-up to that one individual, there are these disciples breaking from the crowd. And that is the repetitive motion each time. People are often saved in the scripture. They come into contact with Jesus having left the crowd. Just go through the Bible and look at the term crowd. The crowd represents the instability of the world, the instability of the society. And anyone, any person who is to become a disciple, they're going to have to break from the crowd, period. 
When we talk about discipleship, we oftentimes say things like this. Don't do that. Read your Bible more. Stop being racist <laughs> to black people and to white folks. Y'all don't know that, too, did you? You know black folk can be racist. See, those things are true. But what we don't focus on is in the Bible, there is this dichotomy. There is this rival between the individual who comes to Jesus and he's always leaving the crowd. They're, they are coming out. They're being plucked out of the group of people to go follow the one man, Jesus. That's what's happening. That's what's going on here. And so we never realize, though we know it intuitively, we never realize to be a disciple, the very idea means that you've got to break away from the crowd. You cannot be a part of the crowd. And what happens is we wind up defining being a part of the crowd in faulty ways. I don't get drunk, so I'm not a part of the crowd. That's only one way to be a part of the crowd. I don't hit my wife, no more. So I'm not a part of the crowd, right? That's only one way to be a part of the crowd. What I'm saying is there is a lot of crowd-like behavior in the church. That's why we are not moving forward it's too much crowd-like behavior. When we say we want to be disciples, we're not being disciples. It's because we are still stuck in the crowd. Case in point, the poor way we have dealt with the homosexual problem, we have not dealt with that well. No, no, no. Because this is what we do. This is what the church has always done. Secularism. Psychology comes along and says, well, I think they got a disease. What the church say? Me too. Then psychology says, well, it probably ain't no disease. And we say, okay, probably ain't no disease. Now we feel straight guilt and we say, well, it's okay to just be who you are and live your truth. Okay, well, maybe it's not wrong. Just go back and forth. That's the first thing we do, the church. We got into a room and shook hands with the world, and we said, we'll let you define these things, and you just tell us what you think. Because Jesus never said it was a disease, and Paul never said it was an identity. Sin is a disease. So to the extent that homosexuality is a disease, so is your lying and your pride. But the world has not called pride a disease yet, so we don't even consider that your pride is a disease. The fact that you got to always be right, that your marriage is struggling because you don't know how to be humble, that people hate you at work because you have to be in control. See, the world calls that strong. So, so does the church. When the world starts calling pride a disease, here we go, hearing all these sermon series on pride as a disease. Because that's what the church has done. We shake hands with the world. Homosexual. This whole problem, that's what we've done. We just let the world do their thing, and we just came behind them, and we just stirred up what God said with what they were doing. Well, it's a disease, but they're still an abomination. So then the world starts off hating them, and so then we hate them too. See that? The world says they should be arrested, they're an abomination, 
kill them all. And then here you are cheating on your husband, ain't nobody killing you. That was a law too. Adultery was a part of the, uh, of the, the sodomy laws. I'm going to let you guess which ones they followed more, the gay one or the adultery one. Yeah, I got a real close friend in St. Louis. He's, his music career is growing. He performed overseas with the, uh, the, uh, the military band, and he was going to go on Ellen DeGeneres' show to perform on her show. He's a member of the Church of Christ, helped me build the youth group when I was in St. Louis. Yes. Brother coming to me and say, now he's going to have to choose what life he want to do. I said, what do you mean? He says, he's going to have to choose what life he wants to do. Either he's going to be a Christian in his music or not. See, because now he's going on Ellen's show, and you know she's a gay. And I said, now wait a minute. Well, what if he was going on David Letterman? Would it be fine then? See, if he was going on David Letterman, that's fine. Even though David Letterman ain't spiritual. We don't know when last time that boy been in church. He had a baby with some woman, and he's sitting up here 70 years old, ain't married, has some baby. You'll let him go on David Letterman's show. See, that's what the world do. The world says, well, you can cheat on your spouse, but you, pre-1962, you homosexuals, all y'all are an abomination. And we just followed the world and called it Jesus, called it Christianity. What really should have happened was this. Imagine if this instead happened. The world says it's a disease, and we defend the sinners by saying all sin is a disease. Don't single them out. Your sin is a disease too. See, we thought that secularism was doing homosexuals a favor. They were not. We were supposed to protect them that's what Jesus would have done. It doesn't matter that they're a part of the crowd. It doesn't matter that they are wishy-washy. We should have been there to teach them. We should have been there to say something. We should have told secular psychology, no, it's not a disease. In 1952, whenever the DSM said it, we should have said, we don't believe that. We believe that sin is a disease. Don't single these people out. Ain't nobody singling out all your pride and all your lust and your materialism. You tell me why anybody needs 200 pair of shoes. Kick rocks. <laughs> Ain't nobody saying you got a disease because you can't stop buying stuff you don't need and there's poor people everywhere. Ain't anybody saying that about you? So we should have said you don't have the right to single those people out and say they got a disease when the person they seeing across the couch dripping in diamonds ain't went to church ever. You can't do that. That's what we should have done. What if we would have said this? What if we would have said... Right? Some of y'all want to kill these people. Come here to us. We understand you hate God. We get all of that. But what if we went to sit with the homosexuals in 1950? Went to sit with the homosexuals in 1960? What if we just were honest and said, we think this is a sin. But like Jesus sat down and ate with sinners and tax collectors, here we go sitting down and eating with the gay folks. What if we would have done that instead of helping the problem by killing them ourselves? Do you know that it's the Christians who led the movement to kill and to mistreat these homosexuals? Do you know how difficult that is? That you just wake up and you're having these feelings and the best thing the church can do is say, whatever you do, be quiet or we're going to accidentally kill you because we ain't spiritual. 
What if the church had done that? What if the church had said, no, send all the homosexuals to us? Because the world, they can't help y'all. What if we were bold and we said, we believe that homosexuality is a sin, but luckily for you, everybody in here is a sinner. So you'll feel right at home. What if we would have said that? What if we got on TV and said, we the church, we think homosexuality is a sin, but so is all the stuff we do. And the Lord is delivering us every day, sending all the homosexuals to us. You guys, what, like, what if we would have told the world, you can't help these people? And you see what the world did. You see what, psych- what secular psychology did. They back and forth. Oh, it's a disease. No, it's not. I mean, follow your truth. So now they're everywhere. So now these people struggling, and they don't know where to go. And we were the ones who were supposed to help them. But we was too busy building churches. We was too busy building churches. Redoing auditoriums, family life centers, playing basketball, being silent, making money. That's what we were doing. And so now we're in this problem. And the best thing we can do in 2017, whenever it actually passes, that homosexuals can get married, the best thing we can do is say, these people, they just ran off their rocker. These people so unspiritual. I just don't know where the world is going. I don't know how we got here. You don't? You don't know how we got here? When the church was supposed to be this huge force pulling people from the crowd, you don't know how we got here? When we were supposed to be a force to pull people from the crowd, but we just let the crowd go and do whatever the crowd wanted to do? You don't, you don't know what happened? You don't remember? So by the time we get here to Acts chapter 2, we can see Peter giving us an example about what we should have done with homosexuals, about what we should have done with the race problem. You know, the way we deal with homosexuality is the same way we deal with race. Black people dying everywhere, all this injustice, the best thing we in the church can do is to be silent and keep on coming. We'll pray for them. Oh, yeah, a black fellow just got killed in our city for just ordering a sandwich. Well, what, well, what did you do? What did, what did, what did, what did you do to, to infuse the Holy Spirit into that situation? Well, we prayed, and we hired a youth minister. There are a lot of problems. And so my thing is we say, well, the church is not supposed to deal with that. We don't look at Jesus a lot. Because Jesus is going above the government, around the government. He don't care about the government. He's saying, these people are hurting, and I care about hurting people. Bring the hurting people to me. Bring the hurting people to me. What if we would have done that? Peter's going to show us how to address problems like this. If you noticed in this passage, Acts 2.6, without surprise, says, and at this sound, the multitude came together, there's that word again. We just read right over it. The crowd, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Beginning in verse number 14 in chapter 2, the Bible says this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David saw concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have had, you have made, rather, known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us today, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter, he helps us to see that in a complex situation, you have to clarify it by using the Holy Spirit and the example of Christ. Peter, he says, I understand that a lot of confusion is happening right now, just like it is today. He says, I understand that there's a lot of perplexity in the room, a lot of discomfort. You don't know what God is doing. He says, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give to you the story of Jesus. I'm going to give to you the Holy Spirit because that's how we deal with situations like this, with homosexuality, with race, with political differences, with all the things that are assaulting us, the dangers in our society. What we do is we say, no, 
We are the disciples that have been brought from the crowd, and now we turn to the crowd just like Peter so as to bring the crowd out of themselves and into the gospel using the story of Jesus infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that when the gospel writers are writing and, and, and filming this huge movie that is the life of Christ, they're first starting from this panoramic view to take in the crowd, and then this close-up to take in us, all to prove this one point, that in order to be his disciple, we will have to systematically break from the crowd.